Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Welcome to episode number three of the Best Interest Podcast. I'm Jesse Kramer. All right, let's see. I'm recording this on February 20th, 2021. It's a very snowy Saturday morning here in Rochester, New York. And today we're going to be talking about personal finance unknowns. One of the key tenets behind personal finance and investing is risk. Risk is yet another example of this cross-pollination between math and psychology, one of the things that makes me so interested in this subject. So risk I usually think of it as a combination of likelihood or probability and consequence. Those are both mathematical in nature, probability especially, but usually in finance we can ascribe some specific dollar amount to the consequence. I mean, for example, let's flip a coin. If you win, I'll give you $1,000. But if I win, you give me $500. The math here is clear. You should take that bet. You have a 50% chance of winning $1,000 and a 50% chance of losing $500. But to many people, the pain of losing $500 is actually greater than the joy of winning $1,000. Pain and joy aren't mathematical, they're psychological. Now this phenomenon is called loss aversion. It's a well-studied topic in behavioral economics by folks like Nobel winner Danny Kahneman, Nobel winner Richard Thaler, who, by the way, is a University of Rochester graduate, represent. But back to the point, psychology makes many people refuse that coin flip offer, even though the rational decision is obvious. Risk in personal finance and investing is important to study and understand. In my experience, the more I've learned about it, the more I've been able to differentiate between my rational mathematical thinking and my sometimes irrational risk-averse thinking. It's okay to be risk-averse. We all have our risk aversions. I've found that being aware of my personal risk tolerance has been very helpful. It lets me know sometimes that, sure, I'm being a little bit irrational, but it makes me feel better. It makes me sleep better at night. It makes me... uh, I'm better able to decide what's best for me, how to put that personal into my personal finances. So as we move through the main topic today, which is all about personal finance unknowns, start thinking about how you think of risk in your life and in your personal finances. And then we have a complex listener question, but I think you'll find it quite educational. So with that, let's move on with the show. Personal finance unknowns. What you don't know can hurt you. What's your rent? How much do you spend on groceries every week? How much do you contribute to your 401k? Odds are you have a pretty good idea what these easy answers are. You know your rent. You know how many bananas you eat every week. But do you know about those cavities that are going to pop up this fall? Ouch. Do you have an Outlook event in your calendar for furnace catastrophically fails? My point is this. The knowns are fairly straightforward. 
but the unknowns in personal finance are the biggest sources of stress, loss, and negative outcomes. Budgeting is step zero of personal finance. Without a budget, you might not know where your money is going. Is your net worth growing, shrinking? How fast? How slow? Is it on pace compared to where it quote-unquote should be? If you're a frequent reader of the blog or listener of the podcast, you might know this phrase that I have tattooed on my forehead. You can't manage what you don't measure. It's a quote by uh, managing guru Peter Drucker, who suggested that measuring is an act of knowing. Measurement is how you know what you're dealing with. And the only way to improve what you're dealing with is if you know what's going on. So you have to measure something in order to then manage it. Budgeting and tracking turn your personal finance unknowns into orderly knowns. And once you measure, then you can manage. In fact, I like budgeting so much that I bothered a bunch of other financial writers to let me know how they budget. And I turned that into an article, just an entire article about different uh, budgeting tactics. A simple and common downfall in personal finance is the overdraft. You have $70 in your checking account and you use your debit card to buy $100 worth of blog recommended books. It's so educational. Well, unfortunately, banks don't like it when you spend more money than you have. And they penalize you for it. They charge you an overdraft fee. But budgeting can completely eliminate this issue. If you know that you only have $70 left, perhaps, perhaps you choose to buy fewer books. Or better yet, you choose to just go to the library. It's probably a wise choice. It's the state of not knowing that leads to overdraft fees in the first place. But I'll admit, there are bigger fish to fry. I peer into my crystal ball and I see elves. I see reindeer. Wait a second. Why does this crystal ball have fake snow floating around in it? Oh, it's a snow globe. Christmas is coming, guys. Or whatever holidays you celebrate that might involve a spike in your spending. Yes, I know it's only February, but we know that Christmas is coming eventually. So why not begin preparing for it now? Christmas is actually kind of easy. We know it's coming, and we even know the specific date that it's coming. There are other life events that we know will happen eventually, but we're not sure on the specific date. For me, a perfect example is replacing my car. Ideally, I'll drive my 2012 Toyota for another eight years, but I'm aware that eventually it will kick the bucket, and I'm probably going to buy another used Toyota or something like that at that time, maybe a $15,000 purchase. So I've been asking myself, should I spend five or 10 years to slowly save up that $15,000? Or would I rather urgently figure it out right as my current card dies? Clearly, the methodical savings plan would be less stressful and less risky. The urgent need plan has stress and negative impacts associated with it. What if I simply don't have the money saved up for another car when I need it? This is another example of a personal finance unknown. In this case, the unknown is the need date for that money. And it could lead to a negative result. And why? Well, one reason why is because long-term planning is difficult as is. Humans are bad about thinking that far ahead. And it's made harder when you're lacking specific details. 
Planning for Christmas can be pretty easy because we know it's coming this uh, December. Planning for my car to break down and kick the bucket, that's hard because I don't know what date it's going to happen. Uh, but it's certainly not impossible to plan for. I recommend just thinking about stuff that might happen eventually. I know that's a very uh, broad term, a broad question, a broad request of you, just to think about stuff that might happen eventually. But if you sit down and, and you do it, you'll find that you'll come up with some things that you ought to be saving money for. So I use this app called uh, YNAB, You Need a Budget, or YNAB, to help me plan for this. I'm already saving little bits of spare cash for home maintenance, for car maintenance, for routine medical bills. In many ways, this is an extension of my emergency fund, except I've got a bit more control over it. The emergency fund covers completely random events that I never saw coming. I'll talk about these events, what I call black swan events, later on in the episode. Comparatively, I use YNAB to help me save for the known unknowns, things that I know will happen eventually, but I just don't know when. So a little challenge for you to take away from this episode. What are the top three future expenses that you know will happen eventually, but you're just not sure exactly when? Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about student loans. So how many 27-year-olds are out there listening to this episode, maybe, and they're saying to themselves, I know so much more about student loans now than I did at age 17 when I actually signed up for them. Why is that? And how is that? How can we have this paradigm in which millions of teens are signing up for five or six figures of debt, but then only understanding the magnitude of that debt after they are years into paying it off? You know who thinks he knows that answer? Let's bring in our friend, Uncle Dave. Ah, yes, Uncle Dave. Well, it's nice to receive the occasional happy birthday or all caps message from your Uncle Dave. We all know that the true purpose of Facebook comment section is for typo-riddled political arguments between tangential strangers. I mean, where else can your Uncle Dave call your boss's wife a Russian pawn? Now, every time I see a Facebook story about student loans, I see someone's Uncle Dave chime in and say, In America, when you sign up for a loan, you pay it off. Now, this argument has me very interested. I understand that Uncle Dave is a bastion of patriotism and moral standards, but I think in this case, he's missing the forest for the trees. So, here's my straw man decimation of Uncle Dave. To wit, first... Plenty of American organizations seem to sign up for debt and then fail to pay it off. Perhaps the 2008 financial crisis or General Motors bankruptcy would remind Dave of that. And plenty of American citizens get themselves into debt and use bankruptcy as a way out. You see, Dave's a little mixed up. Bankruptcy exists so that people aren't haunted by debt into their graves. But as lawmakers would have it, it's very difficult for bankruptcy Uh, to file for bankruptcy due to student loans. In fact, bankruptcy is so American that former President Donald Trump has done it not once, but six times. I assume that's why I see people writing things like, oh, Donald Trump is completely bankrupt. I mean, failing to repay debt is seriously American. And second, this isn't necessarily a financial argument, but Uncle Dave's opinion follows this illogical American, or maybe even illogical human tradition of turning up one's nose at younger generations. 
First, the flappers gatsbied their way into the Great Depression. Then the hippies, they reefered the country straight downhill after the babies boomed. See, my millennial peers were, uh, what, ultra-violent video gamers. And if this category of teenage behavior starts with dancing, smoking weed, and Grand Theft Auto, I think it's only logical that Uncle Dave ends it with borrowing $100,000 for the education that you've been trained into believing is mandatory. Wait, that, that doesn't really make sense. See, but Uncle Dave does have one point. In America, we do allow people to get themselves into huge amounts of debt. And I do agree that people should try to pay back what they've borrowed. But I also think that we should offer some help. On a future podcast episode, I'm sure I'll go into this in detail, but I've written a couple articles on the blog explaining the difference between repaying principal versus making interest payments. And from a moral point of view, I think if you borrow money, you should try to repay that money. I think you should try to repay the principal. But I make a mathematical argument on the blog that people are failing to repay their student loans because they're drowning in interest payments. And I think when you see someone drowning, you should try to lend a hand. But back to the point of this episode, how can we educate 17-year-olds that borrowing $20,000 is significantly different than borrowing $60,000 or $100,000? How do we better inform people about the repercussions of their financial choices and shine light on that particular personal finance unknown? Uncle Dave's argument skews towards stupid kids don't be so stupid but the real argument should be how the heck do we let kids sign up for this deal who has got their best interest oh in mind well uncle dave thinks he knows how to verbally kick some millennial ass the sad truth is that a lot of uncle dave's peers are in a similar position to the millennials but instead of finding themselves in student loan debt, many baby boomers are finding themselves woefully unprepared for retirement. The problem is easy to understand. When you start getting a steady paycheck, you finally have the money to buy the stuff you've always wanted. Then you get married, uh, then you buy a home, then you have kids. It's easy to spend money on a spouse, on a house, and, I mean, what's a word for kids that rhymes with spouse and house? But anyway... The point is this, there are a lot of places to spend money in life. And if you're not looking into the future, the prospect of retirement savings can be this invisible dot on the horizon, invisible and unknown. Or as Roger Waters of Pink Floyd might say, you are young and life is long and there is time to kill today. And then one day you find that 10 years have gotten behind you. No one told you when to run. You've missed the starting gun. It can be pretty disheartening to find that you've missed the starting gun. After all, there's no better time to start investing and start saving than when you're young. But what happens if you didn't know that? What do you do when 10 years have gotten behind you, or 20 or 30 years have gotten behind you, and you've got no savings to show for it? Talk about a source of stress and a source of negative outcomes. 
I mean, another 10 years of work when you're already 65 years old, when you're already 70 years old, that's stressful. The next section is called Beware of Black Swans. And while you should steer clear of swans in general, I mean, they are vicious, vicious birds. They're like a Canada goose, but with gigantism. The black swans that I speak of aren't real animals. A black swan instead is a completely unforeseen event, typically one that leads to significant consequences. I mean, did I already mention the 2008 financial crisis? How could someone have planned for that financial crisis and that stock market crash? How would they have seen it coming? Some of you readers, listeners, might have worked or invested before 2008. Did you see it coming? Or did it attack you like a vicious, vicious swan? While 2008 or the next stock market crash might not have been the black swan that took you down, I do think that black swan events frequently lead to personal finance downfalls. Your car catches fire. Your house catches fire. Your dog catches a fight with a vicious, vicious swan. The vet bills can be outrageous. But how do we shield ourselves from something that, by definition, is unpredictable, unforeseen, and incredibly infrequent? What do we do when emergency strikes? Why, we tap into our emergency fund. A quick excerpt for those who don't know. An emergency fund is a pile of money, plain and simple. Some people suggest it should be at least $1,000, enough to cover some sudden car repair or new water heater. Others think it should be three to six months worth of living expenses in case you lose your job and you need to find another one. Either way, the emergency fund, it just sits there in your bank account. It's money that just sits there. You aren't spending it. You aren't investing it. It might get you a little bit of interest if it's in a savings account, but it provides no utility most of the time. But, and this is a huge but, when an emergency fund is needed, its importance cannot be overstated. It might be the thing that keeps your children warm when the furnace dies midwinter. It keeps the family fed and clothed when the factory lays you off. It's the buffer between smooth sailing and impending disaster. It's a safety net when life throws you the worst kind of curveball. So when a vicious, vicious black swan comes biting your way, pull out some of your emergency fund and slap its beak off. A black swan's unpredictability makes it an unknown unknown. Not only do you not know about it, but there's no way you ever could have known about it. But there are plenty of ideas that are known, yet you and I might not know about them. These are known unknowns. For example, plenty of people look at their first credit card as free money. In fact, they might still see it as free money while they make their minimum monthly payments. But once that payer sees that they've made $1,000 in payments for a $400 TV, then they realize the harsh truth that is a 19% APR. Plenty of people know the dangers of credit card debt. That knowledge is out there. But for this particular unlucky Panasonic-owning Visa customer, it was a personal finance unknown. Next thing you know, your credit card simply gets declined. Similarly, there are common uncertainties that cloud investing and taxes and all sorts of personal finance topics. Like, what's the difference between a 401k and a Roth IRA? Should I take a raise, even if it bumps me into the next tax bracket? I've asked questions like these before, and I see them asked every day on online forums like Quora and Reddit and Twitter. 
I think it's phenomenal that those questions are being asked, so long as people are turning their personal finance unknowns into knowns. So if you have questions about personal finance, odds are there's an answer out there. You weren't the first one to have asked that question. So I'd encourage you to seek out answers. I'm not an expert, uh, but I know what it feels like to not know. And then seek an answer, and then finally close the loop. I really like closing that loop. It's one of the reasons why I write on the blog and why I've created that podcast. Like many people, many of you too, I guess, I have a fear of the unknown. You know, did I turn the oven off? Will I overdraft my checking account? Could a bevy of swans kill a full-grown man? But financial education is the key to alleviating many of the personal finance unknowns that I described here today, or many of the other unknowns that I haven't yet touched on here. Unfortunately, personal finance education is not a part of many common educational curricula. Instead, one has to find information on their own. Thank goodness for the internet. Personally, I've learned a lot scouring sites like NerdWallet, the tomes of Reddit. There are millions of people just like you, just like us, who are trying to learn by feel through murky personal finance waters. What do experts think? How did prior success occur? Who and what are the most well-respected books on personal finance? If you're looking for a takeaway today, it's this. Think hard about your personal finance unknowns and find a way to figure them out one by one. Google is your friend, and there are a lot of people out there willing to vet what you've learned. Heck, I mean, run it by me. As you know, I love to field questions. In my opinion, 95% of personal finance information is pretty easy to pick up on but it takes a little bit of homework. It's neither rocket science nor common sense. It's somewhere in between. The remaining 5% of personal finance information, most of it is so obscure that it probably won't matter to you anyway. If you spend a few hours a month attempting to fill in the gaps in your personal finance unknowns, you'll be amazed how much you know one year from now. I can certainly attest to that. All right, that's it for the main topic today. So let's switch over to a listener question. Today's listener question comes from Bobby on Twitter. I don't know Bobby's last name. My assumption here is that he is the one and only Bobby. So if you know someone named Bobby, odds are he is the one who asked this question. Make sure you tell him thank you and you point him to this podcast episode. Bobby asked, why are CAPM's conclusions suspect and not supported empirically? Now, listeners, before you turn the podcast off, yes, this is a complicated question. So, Bobby, I'm going to simplify some things, hopefully not too simple, and answer your question in the process. Listeners, I'm going to try to give you a full background on Bobby's question, explain to you maybe some of the underlying concepts that you're not aware of. And let's be honest here before I start. When Bobby asked me this question, I had to go off and do a few hours of reading. I don't have a PhD in economics. I'm not a stock trader, which is kind of what CAPM has to deal with. I don't work at Goldman Sachs. I'm just an engineer who's good at math, decent at explaining things. So to answer Bobby's question, let's first go back to the 1950s. And maybe even earlier, we can start in the 1930s where we had the Great Depression. And then we had the 1940s, dominated by World War II. So when the 1950s came around, it actually saw the biggest decade of stock market growth in American history. 
And some smart economists looked at one another and they asked, man, these stocks, they are, they are hot. People love them. But how do we balance the risk and the reward of stocks? I mean, better yet, how do we find the right price? If we know the risk of a stock and we know the reward of a certain stock based on that company's fundamentals, how do we find the best price of that stock? Well, risk, of course, the risk in owning stocks is that your portfolio decreases, that you lose money. And the reward is that your investments grow. So one economist in particular named Harry Markowitz, he wrote a paper in 1952 that ended up winning him a Nobel Prize. And this paper presented a mathematical support for diversification. You see, Markowitz proved that diversification within an investment portfolio could reduce risk without reducing reward. Now, this foundational idea that diversification is good, it has shaped portfolio management for the past 60 years. So that was 1952. And then if we fast forward to the late 50s, some other smart economists started building off of Markowitz's work. They said, okay, we know that a portfolio should be diversified. It helps us reduce risk while maintaining our rate of return. But if I'm looking at a single stock, unsure of whether to include it in my portfolio, how do I determine if that stock is fairly priced? This is a golden question, everyone. It's a million-dollar question. I mean, let's be honest. It's actually probably a trillion-dollar question. How do you determine if a stock is fairly priced? If you're looking at a share of Apple or Kodak or Delta Airlines, how do you determine that stock's fair price? If you know the answer, then you can make an informed decision about whether to buy the stock because it's underpriced or whether not to buy the stock because it's overpriced. So this brings us back to Bobby's question. CAPM, which is the Capital Asset Pricing Model, was one of the first highly respected models for stock pricing, for asset pricing. CAPM is one of many models that people have now used for decades to determine the fair price of a stock. CAPM tries to balance the risk of the stock in question against the general risk of the entire market and also against the risk-free rate of return. If you listen to episode two of the podcast, you'll remember that I spoke about treasury bonds and how low their rate of return is. Well, treasury bonds are the risk-free rate of return. There is zero risk with taking out a treasury bond. Therefore, it has an extremely low rate of return. It's risk-free after all. Doesn't that make sense? Zero risk means little reward. The CAPM model simply asks, as we add in more risk, how should we increase the reward? So it has one factor that it builds off of, risk. If stock A is riskier than stock B, everything else being equal between the two, then how should their prices differ? That's what CAPM answers. But Bobby asked, why is CAPM suspect and not supported empirically? So really, the second of Bobby's questions answers the first. Empirically means real data. So Bobby is asking, why is CAPM suspect and not supported by real data? Well, it's suspect because it's not supported by real data, at least not supported strongly enough. So now we go to a couple other economists, famous Nobel winner Eugene Fama and his very well-known economist partner Ken French, another University of Rochester graduate. They've cast doubt on CAPM, 
they published research in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, namely, they said, hey guys, we've applied CAPM to a bunch of real stock market data, and we found that it's only about 70% accurate. But we've come up with a new variation of CAPM, which we call the Fama French three-factor model, and it's about 90% accurate. So Bobby, one of the keywords there was real data. CAPM was too simple, and the Fama French three-factor model is a little more complex and a little more accurate, and it, it works better with real stock market data. So CAPM cares about one factor, risk, but the Fama French three-factor model it also cares about uh, market capitalization and something called the price-to-book ratio. Now, if you guys watch CNBC, you might see or hear these terms a lot. And they're, they're pretty straightforward, actually, even though, like many finance and economic terms, they sound complex. Market capitalization, or market cap, is simply how big is a company in terms of dollars. That's it. How big is a company in terms of dollars? Fama and French, they found that smaller company stocks tend to do better than large company stocks. So their three-factor model gives a slight nod to smaller companies. And price-to-book ratio is a simplified way of saying, is this a value stock or a growth stock? Again, I apologize if it sounds complex. Stick with me here. A value stock is usually something, it's an established company with a strong history of profits and therefore a healthy yearly dividend. A dividend is the money that you receive for being a shareholder, for being a part owner of a company. So some well-known value stocks are Johnson & Johnson, Ford, General Mills, companies that you've known since you're a kid, companies that have well-established track record, companies that have a strong history of profits. But a growth stock, that's a stock that might not have a strong revenue or have strong profits yet, but it is seen as some company that in the future is going to grow and, and it will one day be a household name or will one day be a, a company that is has products all over the country and they are making big profits. So there's an easy example here. It's Tesla. Tesla right now is the seventh largest company in the world by market cap. And yet their first ever year where they had an annual profit was 2020. They've been around since 2003 and they didn't turn a profit till 2020. So how can they be the seventh largest company in the world? Well, it's because investors believe that the future profits of Tesla are going to be completely out of this world, as in on Mars. Get it? SpaceX? But back to the point. The Fama French three-factor model, it looks at risk, it looks at company size, and it looks at whether a company is a value or a growth stock. And it uses those three factors to come up with a more accurate price model than CAPM. And it's supported by real empirical data. So, Bobby, does that answer the question? Thanks for asking, Bobby. I appreciate you. Let me know what you think. All right, folks. If you have questions that you'd like me to answer here on the podcast, uh, you can send them to jesse at bestinterest.blog. Or you can visit the website, bestinterest.blog, and find the contact page. Or you can follow me on Twitter, username bestinterest underscore JC. If you enjoyed the podcast, then I hope you will consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app. You can leave me a review. I really appreciate the fact that two episodes in, about 25 of you have left me reviews on Apple Podcasts or ratings on Apple Podcasts. 
That is fantastic. I can't thank you enough for that. So subscribe to the podcast. Leave me a rating. Leave me a review. You can subscribe to the blog, bestinterest.blog backslash subscribe. And the third thing, a favor, I hope you'll consider sharing this content. Ben Franklin said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. Sharing with others is investing in their knowledge. As usual, thank you guys. Really appreciate you. Thank you for listening to the Best Interest Podcast.